Well, hello and welcome to the Speak Up podcast with Laura Camacho. This is I speaking, Laura Camacho. Have a great guest today for you, a man named Bob Kolhap, who is from Cincinnati, Ohio. I know some of you are in Ohio listening to this. And he has had an, an illustrious career with a company called Sintas, which is has helped over a million companies prepare for the workday. I think that's a great mission to fulfill. And he has a book that he's written called Building a Better Organization with a lot of focus on culture building. So you all know that that is my love language, culture building. So it's going to be a great interview. Bob has a lot of stories to tell. But first, I want to give a quick message from our sponsor today. So today's Speak Up podcast episode is sponsored by Mixonian Institute. Mixonian Institute was founded in 2009 to provide bespoke communication skill coaching and training to rid corporate America of boring, redundant, and rambling messaging. We have a lot of work to do. In 2020, Mixonian Institute added culture building conversations workshop to its portfolio of training options because we were seeing the interconnection between culture and communication. And then this year in 2021, we introduced two new workshops. One is called Sell Your Ideas and the other is called Leading with Inclusive Communication. And if you want to know more, the website is www.mixonian.com. Mixonian rhymes with Smithsonian and is spelled M-I-X-O-N-I-A-N. So, Bob, welcome to the Speak Up podcast. And please, I know that you, you're a success story in corporate America. It looks like you grew up with Cintas, like you were a long time with with the company, which is doing still very well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your journey? Okay. Well, I joined CentOS in 1967 as controller. I was a practicing CPA and wasn't really looking for a job. And I got a phone call one day from a fellow named Dick Farmer, who's CentOS's founder. And he asked me if I would like to talk to him about coming to work for him as controller. And I said to him, Dick, I'm very happy where I am. I have no interest. And I hung the phone up. Well, Dick Farmer is a very persistent man, and he kept working on me and calling me and talking to me. And finally, one day he said to me, what's the harm in just coming out and meeting me and spending a few minutes talking about the possibility of coming to work for me? And I did that, and that's the decision I ever made because Dick and I hit it off extremely well. He told me about his ambitions of building Cintas into a national company, and I could play a key role in that. And I joined CentOS as controller in 1967. In a number of years later, I was promoted to vice president and treasurer. Then in 1989, I was promoted to executive vice president, 94 president and chief operating officer. In 94, I was elected to CEO. I was president and chief operating officer prior to that. Then I became vice chairman and then chairman of the board and retired in 2016 after just short of 50 years at CentOS. It was an incredible journey because when I started in 1967, we had sales of about a million and a half dollars, barely made a profit, had about 62 employees who we call partners. And today we do about 7.1 billion, make just short of a billion dollars in profit and have over 40,000 partners or employees. And I don't mean to suggest that I was the key reason for that. I was certainly part of it, 
a big part of it, but there were a whole lot of people that made it happen, as you can imagine. And it was a wonderful experience to be part of such a great growth story that we had and some great people and a good business. And I feel very blessed to be part of it. That is wonderful. And what a career, what a legacy to look back on. I think that's quite remarkable. Well, I want to get right away to talking about culture, organizational culture. And I would like to know, like, how do you define that? It's such amorphous quality, and yet everybody's talking about it all the time. So what do you think of with culture? Well, let me explain to you how what happened to cause us to define our culture. And before I get into that, let me explain that I believe every organization has a culture. You can talk about the family you grew up in. You can talk about the schools you've gone to. You can talk about the company you work for. There's a culture in that organization, that school, that family. If you, if I ask you to talk about three or four key things that your mother and father felt very strongly about in your family, you can all, everybody that's listening could rattle them off very quickly. That's the family culture. So every organization has a culture. But back shortly after I started with the company in the early 70s, we lost a few management employees, uh, not a lot, but for our size, a handful was a lot. And we sat in uh, Mr. Farmer's office one Saturday morning and talked about why did that happen? And we actually went through every person we lost, management person we lost in the last several years with a total of maybe seven or eight. And we began talking about why did this person leave or why did we ask that person to leave? In some cases, they left us. In some cases, we left them. And as we talked about each person, our human resource manager at the time, a gentleman named Bill Miller, spoke up and said, you know what? They weren't a culture fit. And we said, what do you mean they weren't a culture fit? And he said, well, we work hard. We work most Saturday mornings. We take goals very seriously. We're very direct in our communication. We let people know exactly how we feel about things. We have a strong feeling to take care of our customers. We have a strong feeling about the people who work for us and taking care of them. And we found that some of the people that joined us weren't compatible with that culture. And we stepped back and realized that really that was our fault, that we had not taken the time to define what our culture is and explain that to new potential hires, as well as evaluate whether a new potential hire would fit into that culture as opposed to be clashed with that culture. And so we wrote a book called The Spirit is the Difference that describes what it's like to work at CentOS. It has some history of the company in it, and it talks about how do we feel about our partners, our employees? How do we feel about our customers? How do we approach things? What is our work ethic? How do we feel about making goals and achieving goals and all those kinds of things? And what we then began to do is to give that book to prospective hires and then have a subsequent interview and talk to them about it. And in most cases, people would read the book and they'd get all excited and they'd say, gee, this is the kind of company I want to work for. In some cases, people would read the book and think we're a bunch of weirdos. Uh, (laughs) That doesn't mean that we are better or worse than them. It means that we're not compatible. And I guess the best analogy I can give you is you think about dating. When you're dating, you're trying to determine, is this a person you want to spend the rest of your life with and marry? Well, you go through a process to know each other and talking about things and determine, am I compatible with this person? For example, if one spouse wanted to have children, the other spouse didn't want to have children. When do you want to find out about that? Before you get married or after you get married? can be very difficult if you find out about that after you get married. Mm -hmm. And so I think the same thing is true when you're bringing people into your organization. You need to explain to those people, what is it like to work here? 
What do we feel strongly about? How do we go about doing our jobs? What are our expectations of people? What are our expectations of the company? And determine whether or not this prospective employee is compatible with those expectations. So that's how our culture came about. Now, our culture consists of three elements. First of all, our principal objective, which was to exceed our customers' expectations by maximizing the long-term value in order to maximize the long-term value of our shareholders and our partners, our working partners. That one sentence drives every major decision we make at CentOS. So if we think about, are we going to buy a company? Are we going to hire this person? Are we going to build a new plant? Are we going to fire somebody? Are we going to raise our salaries? All of those questions should be put up against, will this decision exceed our customers' expectations in order to maximize the long-term value of CentOS for our shareholders and working partners? If it does, we should do it. If it doesn't, we shouldn't do it. That's the first part of our principal objective. Now, I'll give you a story about how that principal objective plays itself out. As we grew, we got to the point in some cities where we needed to either build a bigger plant or open a second plant. And we had lots of discussion in the C-suite about what's the optimal size plant. And there were some people in that meeting that talked about we should build a mega plant. So rather than build a second plant, we should build a real large plant. Other people in the meeting felt we should not do that. We should come up with an optimal size plant, and then we should build plants to uh, duplicate plants in every city as once we reach that optimal size. One of the determinations in what the optimal size was, was the number of employees that work there. My experience has been that the top person in an organization at a given plant can stay in touch with about maximum 200 people where they know them well, they know them by their first name, they go out and talk to them, they have a relationship with them. If you work in a location that has a thousand people, it's impossible. You can't do it. And so one of the things we wanted to do was have a size that enabled the general manager of that plant to be able to stay in touch with his people. We also were concerned about giving customer the best service we could. And we realized the closer we're located to the customer, the better service we can give them. We had less time to drive from our plant to their location. The people who work for us would work in the same area that the customers are in. And so there are a number of reasons why we chose to build a second plant. Now, one city we chose to do that was Houston, Texas. And the gentleman who ran the Houston, Texas plant worked for me. And when he heard that we had made a decision to build a second plant in Houston, Texas, he said to me, Bob, I don't think that's fair. And I said, his name happened to be Bob as well. And I said, Bob, why do you say that? And he says, I took over this plant many years ago when it was a very small little company. And I've built it up to a good size now, and we've outgrown the capacity. And to split this thing into two parts and to have half of my responsibility taken away from me is just not fair to me. And I said, Bob, I understand how you feel. And I said, and certainly where income is not going to be impacted by this decision, you'll still have the same opportunity to make the income you're making now and to grow that income. But Bob, let me get out our principal objective. Let me read this statement to you. In order, we want to exceed our customers' expectations in order to maximize the long-term value for our shareholders and working partners. And I said to him, Bob, do you see your name in there anywhere? And he paused and he thought for a minute and he said, no, I guess I don't. And I said, you need to understand something. We don't make decisions based on what's best for you or best for me or best for Dick Farmer, who was our founder. We make decisions what is best for all of our customers, all of our employees, and all of our shareholders. And your name isn't in there. And so we don't make decisions for what's good for you. We make decisions on what's good for the entire entity of the company. 
And so there's an example of where that sentence, that guiding principle, we called the principal objective, gave us guidance as what decision we should make. And I could go on and on and on about companies we bought, other major decisions we made. We'd always go back to that principal objective. The second part of our character, our culture, was what we called our corporate character. Our corporate character was a bunch of adjectives and phrases that described the way we go about doing our jobs and how we feel about customers and employees. And included things like we revere our customers. There's no such thing as a customer who we get mad at or get upset with, even if they're difficult to deal with. We take care of them. We listen to our people, especially the people on the front line. Sometimes people think that just because you have the title manager or supervisor behind your name means you know more than people doing the work. The people doing the work know more about what's going on than anybody else in the company. They're standing Absolutely. right next to it all day. So what executives and managers have to do is create an environment where the people doing the work, you seek their input and you listen to what they have to say. Because when you have a problem, you go ask them. They always know what the problem is. They usually know how to fix the problem, but you got to ask them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you got to listen to them after you ask them. Things like thoroughness. We're extremely thorough at everything we do. Hiring people, determining whether we're going to buy a company. We would usually know the company better than the person selling it to us would because we'd studied inside and out and backwards and forwards. We're enthusiastic. We like people that are positive, that are up, that have a can-do attitude, that think the glass is half full, not half empty. And so all of those kinds of adjectives would describe the kind of environment you were going to join if you worked for CentOS and the kind of environment we wanted to have in the company. Professionalism was a big part of it. How we look, how we act, how we dress, how our facilities looked. All of those kinds of things were extremely important to us. And so that was what we called our corporate character. The third part of our corporate culture was our management system. It's a management system that began many, many years ago. And it is rooted in basic theory that when you have a recurring problem, define the solution to that recurring problem in writing so that you give guidance to the people who work there of the experience that you've had, the best way to solve a problem. And we called that, it became it was an operations manual. It was like the Bible. When you had a problem, you have an accident in your plant, what do you do? You go to the policy manual. The policy manual says, here's what you do if you have an accident in your plant. Now, those policies were always changing and evolving as the company grew and as the environment around us changed. And so it's terribly important that you keep them up to date and viable. But that was the third part of our system, our culture. So those three things, our principal objective, our corporate character, and our management system made up our culture. And we wrote books about it. We taught courses on it. We talked about it constantly. And when somebody was out of step with our culture, it stuck out like a sore thumb because everybody knew we don't do that at CentOS. And so I believe that a culture is terribly important for a company to define. It's terribly important for a company to communicate. And we used to call it the ultimate competitive advantage because it was extremely difficult for our competition to copy it. We could come up with new products, new services, new things. They would eventually find out about them. They would eventually copy them. But if you have a culture, an environment where you're constantly coming up with new things, they're always following you. You're not following them. And so that was something that we just thought was absolutely critical. And we, if we preached it, we talked about it, and we stamped out any events that occurred that were out of sync with it. And you think that this all, I mean, it sounds very organized and it sounds like a very well thought out, not only the cultural values, but the way enforcing them, because that's the ticket 
a lot of times I'm in a company and I'm asking, so what are your values? And they're like, uh, I know they're on the website somewhere and sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. But I like that the book, I know that here in Charleston, Benefit Focus has a book on their culture. I mean, I know many companies do and courses, talking about it all the time, bringing it up. I know some companies give award based on different cultural values. So all of those are reinforcing, like you said, that competitive advantage of your culture. So what specifically though in your culture is what correlates to the high performance you were able to get from your employees? Well, I would say the principal objective, uh, maximizing the long-term value for shareholders and working partners, we had a mindset, and this was defined in our character, is that nothing is ever good enough. We called it positive discontent. Peter Drucker once wrote, great companies have an air of positive discontent. Positive discontent means that anything you're doing can be done better. And so we would talk about that in our uh, discussion of our corporate character that we have high expectations of ourselves, of the people who work for us, of our company. We want to be the best in the business. And in order to be the best in the business, you got to get up early. You got to go to bed late. You got to make good decisions. You got to be thorough. You got to do all the things we talked about in our whole corporate culture discussion. And I think the only way you're going to maximize the long-term value for our shareholders and partners and exceed your customers' expectations is to be very good at what you do and to constantly exceed expectations and performance. And so we had the mantra, good isn't good enough. Interesting. Well, that's uh, an interesting idea. It's kind of like human nature. The high performers are never, there's always hard on themselves. And so you were just kind of encouraging that. Let's make it better, make it better, make it better all the time. We had one that caused me to think of one other thing. We had Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great and Mm -hmm. Built to Last at our annual meeting a number of years ago. And I'll never forget something he said. He said, great companies have a mindset that you can delight us, but you can never satisfy us. That's the mindset we had. Now, that doesn't mean you don't praise somebody when they do something well. You (laughs) praise the heck out of them, especially in front of their peers. Then when you get all finished, you say, how are we going to do better tomorrow? Right. And that's going to just attract that person who is really like always wanting to get better. Well, as I mentioned in our short conversation before we started this podcast episode, I have a lot of clients who start their conversation with me because we're always the communication coach solving communication problems or helping them with tools to have better executive presence to nail that promotion. That's the typical scenario. And so many times I have clients that come to me and they say, oh, Laura, my problem is that I'm too direct. And I always tell them that is not your problem. If you think that's your problem, you need to think again. And you uh, in your book include uh, this idea of instilling directness, getting people to be even more direct as part of your corporate character. So tell me about that. I'm fascinated. Well, I believe... uh... Someone once said the hardest thing for a manager to do or anybody to do is stand up in front of a group of people and give a speech. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that's the hardest thing for a manager to do. My experience has been the hardest thing for a manager to do is to give direct, honest feedback to the people who are working for them. Now, there's a way to do that and there's a way not to do that. One of the things I say in my book is you never criticize the individual. You criticize the behavior. 
Okay. So if you start off a conversation like you big idiot, why did you do that? They're not going to hear another word you say. But if you start off the conversation and you say, Laura, you're really great at what you do. And I love your, the way you're performing your job. You did something last week that I don't believe you should have done because I think it could have been done a lot better. And here's why I say that. Here's what it was. Here's what you did. Here's what I think you should have done. And let's talk about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not criticizing you. I'm criticizing mm-hmm. what you did. And so I think one of the ways you are able to deliver stark, direct feedback is to criticize the behavior, not the individual. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I used to say to people, and when I would teach our corporate culture course, I would say to them, do you think the people who work for you would like to get the direct, honest feedback from you that you're giving to your boss about them? Because the last thing in the world you want to do is to tell the subordinate they're doing a great job and tell your boss they're doing an average job. And the problem that a lot of people have is that they're afraid of a conflict, personal conflict, when they're giving direct feedback. And you got to get over that fear because it usually doesn't happen. I used to tell people the worst thing about going to the dentist is thinking about going to the dentist. Usually doesn't hurt as much as when you actually go. I feel the same way about feedback. When you give people direct feedback, when you give them honest feedback and you tell them, and once you, they realize, and it takes a while, that you're really trying to help them. You're trying to make them better. You're not trying to make them feel bad and make them uncomfortable. People begin to accept it. And so I think it's a failing that a lot of managers and supervisors have is that they haven't learned how to deliver feedback, okay? Feedback needs to be immediate, whether it's good or bad. Praising is a whole lot better than reprimanding, okay? People are more motivated by praising. So if you see somebody doing something right, go over and praise the heck out of them and tell them what a great job they did, how much you love what they're doing and how they're doing their job. But if they do something that isn't right, you should do the very same thing. It should be immediate. You never criticize the individual. You criticize the behavior and you finish it with something positive. Like example I just gave, Laura, now I know you're going to do a great job and I know you'll solve this problem and it'll never happen again. So it's like the sandwich approach, I call it. Nice thing you say, then you got the bad thing you say, and then you finish up with a nice thing, so to speak. But giving that feedback is so critical. One of the examples I use in my book, is the comparison of a boxing match and a basketball game. Mm -hmm. In a boxing match, I'm a sports enthusiast. Boxing is one of my least favorite sports for a whole lot of reasons. (laughs) But if you think about it, the two contestants in a boxing match have no idea who's winning. Mm -hmm. Unless you knock somebody down and they're on the canvas for 10 seconds Mm -hmm. and can't get up, you don't know whether you're winning or you're not winning. Nobody in the audience knows whether you're winning or not winning. And at the end of the fight, Some referee stands up and says, so-and-so says it's this to this and so forth. And they hold one guy's hand up or gal's hands these days and say, here's the winner. Can you imagine if you played a basketball game that way? No score. Fans don't know who's winning. Fans don't know who's losing. They run up down the court. They shoot baskets. And at the end of the game, the referee comes out and holds up the hand, the captain of one of the teams. It's almost (laughs) comical, isn't it? Right. Basketball is a perfect feedback system. What's the objective of the game? Mm -hmm. Score more points than the other team. How are you doing? Constant feedback. You can look up the scoreboard at any time and tell them what they're doing. And then when I'd have a class that I'd be teaching with, I'd look at them and I'd say, now, let me ask you something. Does your department or your area of responsibility look like a boxing match or a basketball game? 
Oh, great nice. analogy there. I see some eyes rolling on it. Yeah. And so that's the way you got to think about it. Are you managing your people like a basketball game? Here's what I expect you to do. And giving them as quick and as much feedback on how they're doing as you can and coaching on how to improve. Or is it mm-hmm. like a boxing match? Go fix this problem. Don't give them any training. Just send them out there and expect to fix the problem. And right. They don't know whether they're doing it or not. Right. Yeah. And I hear about people complaining that they don't get enough time with their boss to get that feedback. And that's definitely, I think it's not a communication problem. There's another, it has to be a deeper problem. If you're a manager of managers or a manager of not managers, line people, you need to have some time with them in order to give them that feedback. Would you agree? Right. I would give a performance review and it would take two hours. Oh, okay. Wow. Not two minutes, like a lot of them are. Hey, Bob, you're doing a great job. You're getting 4% pay increase. Keep it up. That's not a performance review. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way too many of them are. Right, right, right. Well, I want to cover another topic while I have you here as our guest, because the topic of trust so important. I have good communication with trust. Without trust, you need communication. You need trust to have good communication. Let me say it right. And it seems so obvious, like be trustworthy, say what you mean, mean what you say, say what you're going to do, what you're say you're going to do, things like that. And yet sometimes with, because of the time crunch and a lot of companies, especially that work in technology where things are very messy, people come to me, they have a serious issue of trust. They've lost confidence in themselves. It could be usually because they were high performers. And then as I call it, they fell off the horse and got to get back on the horse. Mm -hmm. But do you have any, what is your point of view if you're in a situation where trust has been damaged and you need to rebuild it? Then that can also be with customers, of course, also, right? Sure. Well, first of all, it takes time to build trust. You can't, if you have a new person come to work for you, you're not going to get their trust in a few weeks or even a few months. It takes time. And some of the things that you talked about, being reliable, do what you say you're going to do. Show up for meetings on time. When somebody asks you a question, has a problem, you get back to them with an answer when you said you would. And if you don't have the answer, you tell them, I don't have the answer, but I'll get back to you next week with the answer. I think setting the example builds trust. When you're the boss, everybody watches what the boss does. And if the boss shows up late for meetings, everybody else is going to start showing up for late for meetings. If the boss walks by a piece of paper on the floor and doesn't pick it up, everybody else is going to do it. So when you become the boss, you need to understand that all your subordinates or eyes are on you at all times. If a customer calls and it's 530 and you're on your way out the door and you say to your secretary, tell them I'll call them back in the morning. You have set an example for all the people who work for you. Any customer problem can wait till tomorrow morning. Okay. And so I think sometimes when people get in a position of responsibility, they don't recognize that everybody is watching the boss and everybody will emulate the boss. And if the boss sets the right example, that's one of the ways you can build trust, I think, in the people. They're going to do what you do. So if you do things the right way, they will tend to do things the right way. But I think communication is very important in building trust. I remember I gave a review to somebody a number of years ago and I got done with the review. It lasted almost two hours. And he said, Bob, I want to thank you for giving me this review. And I said, well, what is it that you want to thank me about? And he said, well, he said, I worked for another company for seven years before I came to work for CentOS. You spent more time with me this afternoon in my first performance review. My previous boss spent with me in seven years. And I just want to thank you for it. Okay. And so I think communication is critical and you need to talk to people. When I have a new person work for me, the end of the review, I'd always say to them, 
not just new person, almost everyone. How do you feel about your job? You like it here? Is there anything I can do differently to help you do a better job? Is there any training you think you need? I want you to succeed. I will do whatever I can to help you succeed. Is there anything I can do that I'm not doing? Okay. So what are you saying to that person? You care about them. You want them to be successful and you're opening up the lines of communication so that when they got a problem, they feel comfortable bringing it up to you. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to the boss to create that trust and to build that trust over time. It just doesn't happen overnight. Right. That's so true. And I really like echo your approach of boss asking in a way you're asking for feedback from your report. Like, how can I be a better boss to you? And to me, that's the, such a strong credibility builder that if you're able to ask for, for feedback, then you're better able to give feedback because you've been on the receiving end of it. I think it needs to be like a round trip all the time. Well, if you think about your mother or your father, when you were growing up, your mother and your father gave you lots of accolades and they also pounded the heck out of you from time yeah, to time. Yeah, absolutely. But you still love them, right? Right. You can still right. love somebody who's tough on you. Right. Okay? So Because your parents were. Right. Exactly. That's a great point. Yes. Well, that's awesome. Well, Bob, what advice do you know? You're very successful in growing a company, multiple sizes, multiple times, orders of magnitude. I don't know, from small to really big. And a lot of the people in our audience are going up that path to senior leadership. They're almost there, but not quite. What, of course, without knowing there's particulars, what do you think anybody can do to improve the culture on their team and their group and their area? What would you tell somebody in that situation? Well, you have to define your culture, first of all. You have to know what is it, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? As I said, every organization have a culture. You have a culture. Yes. But absolutely. you need to define it so that you can communicate it and talk to people about it and set expectations for people. This is the way we operate here. This is what we do. This is what I expect you to do. And you ought to have that conversation before you even hire them or put them on your team to be sure that they're comfortable with it. As far as getting ahead, people ask me, how did I end up going from controller to CEO and ultimately chairman of the board? I said, I always had my hand up. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, there was something to be done. I always said, I'll do it. Let me take that on. Half, half the time, I didn't even know what I was talking about, but I <laughs> always had my hand up willing to do more. When my kids graduated from college, my first piece of advice was be the first person in the office and the last person to leave. And everybody around you will notice that. And you will set a pace that people will follow if you're the boss. And your boss will notice that as well. So I think working hard, learning from mistakes. You will make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. I've always said the only people I know that don't make mistakes are the people don't do anything. People you worry about are the people that make the same mistakes over and over again. Those you worry about. Okay, so you learn from your mistakes. When you did something wrong, admit it and correct it. That's what you should do. So I think those would be the key things I would say. All, but I think the number one thing is always have your hand up. I love that. And I, I love it because it's what I tell people also. I've heard so many people say, oh, they don't call on me, Laura. And I'm like, you don't wait to be called on. You have to exactly. raise your hand. I sat in a meeting one time where I made a presentation on why we should start our first garment manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was the vice president and treasurer. And we sat around and said, okay, we agree with that. Who's going to run it? I go, I will. Now, I didn't know squat about making a pair of work pants. I right. found out, I learned about it. I started our first manufacturing plant in a rural community in Kentucky while I was still vice president and treasurer. 
Don't <laughs> those kinds of things I think is what the, your boss notices and causes you to be promoted. So just like we say, exceeding our customers' expectations exceeds your boss's expectation. Love that. Love that. Great. All right. Well, that is so helpful. So interesting. You exceed your boss's expectations. And sometimes I hear that people say they have unclear expectations, but that's something they need to take up with their boss as well. And the deliverables always need to be clear, as clear as possible. But don't you think that if you're not clear that you need that you, the subordinate, need to figure out what you think it is and then present that to the boss rather than just throwing up your hands and saying, I'm lost. Too many conflicting priorities here. Yeah. What are your goals? Um, I've never had to do this because I had two bosses in my life and they were both very good bosses. But if I had a boss where I wasn't sure what was good, what did good look like? I would go asking at the end of the year, what would I have to do to make sure you give me an excellent performance review? Mm-hmm. Right. right. Let, exactly. let, let the boss answer that question. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You start preparing for next year's performance review the year before. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bob. This has been super interesting and very helpful, useful information. Please tell our audience the name of your book again. Give us a little information, like what kind of person would be interested in buying that book and reading it and where they can find it. The name of the book is Build a Better Organization. It's really, there's three parts of it. The first part of the book is about culture, much of what we've talked Mm -hmm. about today. The second part of the book is about hiring the right people. We were extremely thorough in hiring. We created a program called Meticulous Hiring because we found that the number one reason why people weren't successful in our company, we shouldn't have hired them in the first place. So we got very serious about being extremely meticulous in the hiring process. You'd go through 15, 20 interviews before you'd get a job offer from us. We're doing it quickly. We check references. The hiring manager personally checked the references. It was built on a system called past behavior predicts future behavior. So we'd ask all kinds of behavioral questions. You ever fired anyone? Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. It's the hardest decision you ever end up making in your life. Tell me about it mm-hmm. because the people will do what they've done in the past most of the time. So you need to understand how they think, how they decide. The third part of the book is about leadership. And so I have a website called robertcohep.com where you can order the book through Pathway, which is one place to get it. And it's also available on Amazon. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much. This is just so useful, valuable to hear your point of view, having been with like one company for such a long time and really shaping its growth and development. And I believe that if something is true in 1967, it's also true. If it's deep enough, it's also true in 2021. And people's behaviors may change, but human nature has not changed. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for showing up for this episode of the Speak Up podcast with Bob Kolhep. And I will see you on the next one. Take care. Bye-bye. 